0: Today on episode number 202 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Kevin Jones describes ways we can support our students who are veterans. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Hello and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today, I'm excited to be welcoming to the show Kevin C. Jones. Kevin works in higher education assessment and strategic planning. His writing and research has been published in a number of peer-reviewed publications, including the Community College Journal of Research and Practice and New Directions in Institutional Research. He's also the author of Collateral Damage, Stories from Press 53. Before I start the interview with Kevin, I wanted to make a quick mention of today's sponsor for the episode Screencast Omatic. This is a tool that I actually, like, like all of the sponsors that we have, am using myself and have paid for a license on my own and just find a delight in terms of ease of use and being able to screencast quickly. There's a free plan, which gets you started and gets you up to 15 minutes of recording. What you're recording is what's on your screen, though you can also record what's on your webcam. I find it really effective to switch back and forth between a PowerPoint slide or some sort of demo I'm doing of a tool, and then also being able to show my face and have expression. The Screencast-O-Matic Pro gives you the ability to not only create screencasts, but also edit them. You can draw and zoom, be able to mix in video and MP4, record the audio from your PC. If you're on Windows, you can add overlays and video effects and even background music. So it's a great tool because you can just get started really easily. And then as you learn more, be able to easily incorporate some of these additional features in. So thanks again to Screencast-O-Matic for sponsoring episode 202. And now let's get back to my interview with Kevin Jones. Kevin, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed.
1: Well, thank you for having me.
0: We had an unusual way of connecting, but I think fortuitous, because I was on Twitter and I can't even remember exactly what kind of thread it was, but you were engaged and I went and looked at your profile and thought, We have yet to have a conversation about how to better serve our students who are veterans. And here's a guy who really looks like he has a great amount of research in this area. And I'm just so honored that you would come and spend a little bit of time talking to those of us who want to get better at our teaching in higher ed and specifically at better serving our veteran students. So thanks for being here today.
1: Well, again, thank you for inviting me. I'm always happy to be involved and and to talk about veterans.
0: One of the first things that you and I started corresponding about, because it it just comes to mind so much with my work in serving our veteran students, is just how many misconceptions there are. Talk about a few that come to mind for you of just how we get it so wrong when we allow these labels to persist.
1: Sure. I think that there's a few basic ones. Uh, One is the assumption that all veterans have served in combat or even deployed overseas, which is not the case. The vast majority of veterans have never served in combat and and a great number never even deployed outside of the United States. This is certainly more true now in 2018 as we speak than it was even three or four years ago. And that's the first one. The other one is, this is related, veteran experience isn't monolithic. It's easy, like any stereotype you can lump, uh, you can use with veterans too they're all conservative they all like country music or they're all you know i mean and those, or or you know or the opposite they're all um, in a less funny way they're all have ptsd or they all we all have to be very careful with them it, you know veterans are cut from a broad swath of american society and they represent that um, they come from all different backgrounds something a lot of academics don't realize is that the vast majority of veterans who were enlisted, which is the vast majority of veterans period, that is to say they did not have a degree did not serve as officers that are coming to college, are coming to college for the first time. They are majority first generation students and they are by a huge margin attending community colleges first. A lot of the sort of the, a lot of the news that gets out in, in different higher ed organizations about veterans usually highlights, you know, somebody who's going to to an Ivy League school or even a big university like Arizona. And part of that is because that's, as you know, when we talk about higher ed, everyone immediately starts comparing everything to Harvard and Yale and things like that when most of us work at, you know, North Compass Point State University doing really solid work. And that's where most of the veteran students go. They go to a community college or maybe uh, a comprehensive regional and they're putting in the work. The last one I would get into is there's sort of an assumption from the, and this is more on the, administrative financial aid side, there's kind of this idea that, well, the veterans have the GI Bill, so all their funding is taken care of, everything is great, they don't have to worry about anything. And, and the truth is that for students on the GI Bill, they will get enough to cover tuition up to a certain point, plus a stipend for living, which isn't as much as some people think. It depends on what, you know how long they were in and things like that. But it's around 15 dollars to $1,800 a month, which is pretty good. But a lot of these veterans have families. A lot of them are coming from jobs where they were making 40 or 50 a year and had assistance with base housing and, and, and their rent, and now they don't have that. So they have a lot of the same issues that first-generation students and or students who work do when it comes to retention and completion. They're balancing families. They may be balancing part-time obligations on top of a job. They may still be in the reserves and have part-time military duties. GI Bill runs out after three years if they're going full-time. So you still have a lot of students, even with the GI Bill, who end up getting student loans and student loan debt and dealing with those issues too. So while they are, as a whole, performing better academically as far as grades and persistence and retention than students as a whole, even with that assistance, they still have the same sorts of issues that other students do.
0: So we want to be careful of these misconceptions, and I certainly have seen it where students will share with me like you said, everybody assumes I've got PTSD and they'll ask me just such invasive questions and and you talked about in our conversation earlier about everyone wants to know if I killed someone. I mean I it's so hard to fathom that those would just be such inappropriate things to ask anyone about <laughs> with such personal health related information. but we do know and certainly you with your research know there are some common challenges that we might expect some of, not all, but some of our veteran students to experience? Because you talk a little bit about some of the difficulty of adjusting to civilian
1: life. Sure. And part of this is, is my own experience as a veteran years ago, but more recently, the, the veterans I've done research with. A lot of it is mindset. So they're coming from an environment where Uh, On the one hand, everything they do is precisely controlled. You know, when do you get up? When do you go to lunch? When do you do your job? Things like that are very precisely controlled. Less so in a a more fluid combat environment. But I mean, broadly speaking, um, their job is dictated at a level that people who have civilians cannot understand if they've ever gone through it. But on the other hand, they're given a tremendous amount of responsibility and, and autonomy within that restriction at a very young age, 18, 19, 20 years old you know, in charge of 30 other people in a unit and making sure they get everything done. They're working out every day. They're very driven. It's, it's a very type A kind of place. And I mean that in a positive way. And so when veterans come out and get into the classroom, they've expressed frustration with the fact that colleges have all these opportunities for students and all these things to do. And in their mind, most civilian students aren't taking advantage of that like the the veterans i've interviewed don't understand why why is somebody not showing up for class why are they blowing off their homework how are they not prepared because they're coming from a world where being unprepared is inexcusable it's just not done that combined with the fact that there's a certain amount and a lot depending on what branch you go in there's a lot of sort of acculturation in the military where you're better than civilians. And civilians are sort of, you know, the joke is they're these sort of weak civilian pukes and that sort of thing. Part of that is because you're building the team to get them together in the military, starting with boot camp. The other part of it is when you're asking people to do very strenuous, very difficult jobs, it's good for them to have really solid esprit de corps. And sometimes the way you build that esprit de corps is to make them is to have an other. You know, when you're trying to break them of being a civilian and make them a soldier or a marine or a sailor, an easy way to do that is to say, you know, don't miss what you were in the civilian world. You're better than that now. Well, sometimes that can be taken too far or internalized to the point where veterans come out and they're already thinking, look at these guys, you know, look at these guys who didn't do it. I've been over here serving overseas or I've been serving in North Carolina or Arizona or whatever, and these guys have been here just goofing around. So, part of that is, is part of the big process with, with higher education is not always an academic issue. It's an acculturation issue. It's getting used to adapting to the pace at which college moves. And, and a lot of the veterans I've, I've talked to, you know, they go to school, they do the work, they do really well, and then they go back to their home. They're not associating with a lot of other students or getting involved in co curricular activities because they feel like it's very difficult for them to relate to the other students on campus. And this is true whether they're going full-time with 18 to 25-year-old students or if they're going back to school at night. They, they just feel they have so much more life experience and maturity than their peers that it's hard for them to relate to that. So that those are, those are some issues there. Academically, you still have issues that you see with first-generation students in the sense that if a veteran was not great in, say, algebra in high school and joined the army, they didn't get better in algebra four years later. (laughs) So then they have the issue of, they take a placement test and they're told, hey, you might need some developmental education, and you run into the same barriers you have with students who don't really want to take developmental ed in the first place, but you add on, they're 22 or 23, they've been in charge of people, they're like, I don't want to take the, the remedial class. And so there's some pushback with that, too.
0: One of the things that I know comes up so much, too, has to do with a sense of loss of identity. Could you talk about that experience for many of our veteran
1: students? Sure. As I mentioned earlier, it takes a long time to build that military identity. And the military is its all-encompassing. It's, it's, it's not like a job. Uh, I remember hearing somebody explain that the Marine Corps— was akin to joining the priesthood in the sense that it's not an occupation it's a calling Um, you can debate that Uh, i knew plenty of people that joined because they wanted the job but at the same time depending on what branch you do and what you choose to do there is a certain sense that you understand or you understand very quickly this is all encompassing this is your life you know when when people talk about being a marine for example and i'm using that as an example because i served in the marine corps they never say, what do you do? The Marines tell you who they are. You know, They say, I am a Marine. And then afterwards, somebody might say, well, what's your job in the Marine Corps? But usually it's just shorthand. What do you do? I'm a Marine. Done. That's the conversation. And as we mentioned earlier, that's a shorthand for them branding themselves as the same as the other 170,000 Marines that are currently serving right now, when in reality, they're all very different. And that's sort of, you know, within the Marines, that's kind of encouraged. We're all one, but then- Afterwards, it's it's hard to get around that. So you lose that identity when you get out. It's and it's hard to deal with. I remember I was in the Marine Corps. I was in charge of about 30 Marines. I got out. And I think a week later, I was working at at like a Home Depot kind of store running a forklift and mixing paint, you know, and like, no, not in charge of anything and sweeping the floor. Mm -hmm. And it was very humbling, you know, and it was kind of like, hey, nobody cares that you were in the Marine Corps. And you know, on the one hand, it, it should be that way. I mean, you move on and you and you go through those things. But it's definitely, definitely a challenge. And, and I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I know that there have been a lot of studies in the American military and with the British military, actually, where people looked at how hard was it to adapt to civilian world depending how long you served, you know. And so if you got in your first hitch four years, it was okay. If you had eight, if you had 10. And then ironically, there were people that did a full career, a full 20 years and retired, And they, in some ways, had an easier time than people who did, say, eight or nine years and got out because they had retired. Like, they were mentally able to say, I did that for my whole career. I have retired. Now I'm going to do something else. Plus, the fact that these people were only 40, 41 years old when they retired. They always hung on to that, you know, I was a soldier for 20 years identity. But they knew that they had retired and they had gone as far as they could go. So in some ways, it was easier than the person who did, say, eight years and said, I got to get out of this. And if you know you were in long enough to really cement that identity, but now you have to start all over, which is what it feels like. And and college can be a place for that, whether it's a bachelor's degree or you see this with officers who come back and take up a couple of years to get an MBA or something because part of that is sort of learning how the civilian world does things as a leader, uh, which is very different. But yes, the identity is, it's an ongoing challenge for veterans to be able to say, I'm proud of what I did. This is really good what I did but I'm gonna do 40, 50, 60 more years of my life here, and I have to trust that the most important thing I ever did may not have been when I was 18, 19 years old. It may have been. you know, Maybe the most important thing you did was something really great in the military, but that doesn't mean the rest of your life can't be fantastic or you can't do just as important things, and for some vets, and part of that is a matter of being young, and part of it is a matter of military acculturation where they teach you that this is the most important thing you will ever do realizing that, you know, hey, I have to conceive of the fact that maybe someday I will do something great. I will have another job that I like just as much or is just as important.
0: This idea of identity comes up in so many parts of our lives. I treasure the conversations I get to have with our students who are graduating and say, you know, you've you've wrapped this identity as a student around you. And we've done that too. I mean, Talk about acculturating. We have joined you in that process. And now some of them are gonna go out and that they might not get that professional job, the first one that they think sounds right for having a college degree right away that may take some time and some you know lots and lots of hard work and just that what that that wretched process that it is any time in our lives and we experience it but boy what a time for learning the ground is fertile for what we can learn about ourselves and what we're capable of but it's tough I mean, it's, t- it's tough to go through I certainly have gone through that process of having my sense of identity ripped from me at different times in my life and, and so I, mm-hmm. I enjoy the seasons when I get to come alongside them and just talk to them and in fact I want wonder if you would share a bit about just as educators, what are some ways we can better serve our veterans in our classrooms and also in our teaching and our mentoring?
1: One of the things with being a veteran and being in the military is the notion of service. And I think by focusing on service to others, as opposed to military service, you know, sort of deconstructing what it means to serve. Team Red, White and Blue does that. Team Rubicon, which takes military veterans and and takes them as volunteers and deploys them all over the country to help with like hurricane relief and things like that. Very smart ways to do that. And I think what's happened with higher ed, I've seen this certainly at the graduate level, I've seen this, but I see it increasingly at the undergraduate level is instilling students, the idea of being a lifelong learner. So the idea that, you know, your education doesn't end when you finish your degree, we're teaching you skills and, and, and teaching a mindset so that, Wherever you go after college, you're still learning and adjusting, which basically means you're not stuck in one identity. Your identity is constantly evolving. You're not stagnant. And so in higher ed, when I've talked to veterans and they've moved on to different things, I've seen a lot of veterans that go into healthcare or they go into business, but they want to do entrepreneurial work and they volunteer on the side. Um, and, and the central focus there is, um, serve, even if they're making money, they don't have to be all nonprofit and like that, but the idea that they're taking the skills they learned in the military, how to work as a team um, in service of something greater than themselves in the military, obviously it's their branch in the country. How do you do that as a civilian? Because those positive aspects that drove them, uh, I think will drive them to do well in college, do well in the you know, first in the classroom and then at the degree level and then go on throughout the rest of their life with the idea of you can serve something larger than yourself and you don't have to be in a uniform or you don't have to carry a gun or you don't have to, you know, if you want to, that's great, but there's such, so many broader ways to do. And I think that works because a lot of veterans that come out of not necessarily career-focused jobs, in other words, you know, hey, I fixed helicopters in the army, I'm gonna get out and maybe I'll fix helicopters. But for some of the people, there may not be a direct skill set. Or there is, but they're like, well, I don't want to go into law enforcement. Or or even if the people who say, well, I did fix helicopters, I don't want to do that anymore. I just wasted four years of my life. Well, you didn't because look at all the intangibles you learned. Look at how you learned uh, to problem solve, to work collaboratively towards a greater purpose. I think looking, unpacking what military experience is and knowing enough to unpack it and then using that on a broader level will help students Uh, engage in the classroom and engage throughout their degree program in ways that they don't necessarily have to talk about military issues specifically. You know, in fact, personally, I think that if they are able to adapt their experience to broader issues that aren't military specific, it'll be beneficial for them in the long run.
0: What a wonderful way for framing, helping to frame for them how, like you said, people get into military service for lots of different reasons, but for those for whom that real value of a sense of serving my country, to be able to help me translate that into other ways my vocation might be an act of service. What a wonderful way that you're helping them guide that and and reshape that sense of identity, but still that core value is really central in, in this transition for them. You're the first person I've ever heard describe that. One of the things I wanted to make sure we talked about before we run out of time is I know some institutions are doing great things. So we've looked a little bit about how we as individuals might better care for these learners, but what are some of the things that inspire you or should inspire all of us that institutions are doing to better serve our veteran students?
1: I think when you're looking at best practices for student veterans, it needs to be in the same way you have a best practices commitment to diversity or a best practices commitment to assisting first generation students. In other words, it has to be part of a holistic student affairs program and and academic as well. And the schools that are doing really good things don't necessarily have the one big veteran center. I've seen a lot of schools that have amazing veteran centers. I've I've been to universities where they're branded, like here's an Under Armour veteran center and they have all these computers and all that kind of stuff. But that's a building. And most of the veterans I've researched don't necessarily use the, I mean, if they need their GI Bill stuff certified, they go there. But they're not usually hanging out with all the other veterans trading war stories, which is another common misconception because veterans' experiences, like all of us, are very different. So it's good to have that. You know, Here's your veteran's office in the student union. But it's about... How do we have a program to help everybody in the classroom? And I think it comes down to if if you if you cover the basics, you know, if you're doing everything you can to help students academically, you have tutoring available, you you have counseling available, you have advisors available, real people they can talk to. That that's going to help veterans just as much as they're going to help everybody else. The nitty gritty stuff with veterans that they mostly complain about is not necessarily academic. It's it's, you know, did I get my GI Bill? Can I get my paperwork? Are there people who understand what I'm talking about? In the classroom, and I was in the classroom for eight years before I went into administration, and I've taught specific veterans classes and veterans writing classes and, and things for combat veterans. The the biggest thing is don't call them out on stuff. Like you may know somebody's a veteran, but don't don't call them out on that. You know, if they if they want to write about their veterans' experience, great. If they don't they don't. You know, I had one student that really wanted to write about, uh, he was in an attack and he got injured and he wanted to write about that. And that was great. The other thing is, this was easier for me because I was a veteran or not, um, the first few papers he wrote were terrible. And I just said, these are terrible. You know, and, and I know that there's sometimes there can be, I don't want to necessarily say this person's paper is bad because clearly he went through a lot. And it's like, if you're an English professor and it's a bad paper, you have to say it's a bad paper. You know, you can't let somebody in the same way you wouldn't do that if it was somebody of a different race or a different gender or they had a, an obvious disability. You know, you're there to teach your subject matter and they want you to teach your subject matter. And, and I'm, I know that they I know because I've met them, I know that there are some faculty who wanna, well, let me take it a little easier because someone's been through something hard or let me treat this person differently. And I would advise against doing that just because they're there to learn just like everybody else. And sometimes that's difficult and it's difficult with anybody, like I said in English, people will write about traumatic experiences, and you have to handle that however you choose to handle your class. But I've never, you know, I try not to have assignments like, everybody write about the worst thing that happened to you, you know, or, or everybody, tell me, tell me some traumatic incident. I, I've also seen colleges, and I, I wish this wouldn't happen, but unfortunately still does, where they kind of, I think they have the best, their heart's in the right place, but veterans don't want to be used as props. And I remember I was at a college and the president was like, it would be great on Veterans Day if we had, you know, everybody who was a veteran, like maybe they could wear their uniform or bring some stuff and we could have like a static display and they could, you know, have a booth or something. And I, I remember telling him, I was like, they're, they're not going to want to, you know, <laughs> stand like an exhibit in the Smithsonian and for people to stare at, you know, I mean, it, it's different if the student veterans organization says, hey, let's have a table out there. But to have somebody suggest, hey, let's get with all the vets and see if they want to do this thing. Very different. Um, but you know, so that's all, I, I I mean, I think we're at a point now where we've had the first wave of veterans research has kind of come and gone. And now we're working on the second wave and there's still, despite all of the really good research out there, there's still not a whole lot of research that really asks the veterans, Hey, what do you guys need? What are you looking for in a school? We have a lot of people from the top down saying, let's do all these great things. And I've had to learn that that one project you might get a grant for because it's related to veterans, that's wonderful. That might be what not be what your veterans on your campus actually need. Um, and that's a hard conversation to have because we're all hurting for money, you know? Mm-hmm. It's, it's hard to tell somebody, look, I know that's a $100,000 grant, but but like I work with our veterans and they don't need that. You know, we need this thing instead. But getting to know, you know, student affairs level, getting to know the veterans and help them with what they need, uh, as a professor and as a teacher, I would say, you know, just teach your class. Just just teach your class and, and understand that these students are there and they're going to bring strengths just like any other group that's had a variety of experiences, and those are going to be good for your class and don't necessarily tiptoe around subjects. I, you know, I've had people talk – it depends on – I taught English, so it was a little easier for me. I know people that teach history and things like that, and they're like, well, if we talk about war – this is this going to be a triggering moment for some veterans i would use your policy however you use it now you know if, if your school or you personally want to have some sort of trigger warning in there and say hey we may be talking about these things later if there's going to be veterans in your class have an alternate study for that but i've i've talked a lot with people at uh, university of maryland college university of virginia and virginia tech university of south florida which has one of the largest veterans population in the country Look at some of the schools like that to see what their best practices are, because they've been dealing with this for a while, and they have some really good entrenched academic and student affairs recommendations. And it's it's all it's all public. It's all they're very they're very nice to talk to. I'm friends with a lot of veterans uh, center directors and academics doing veterans research through Twitter, and, and and it's amazing how many people you can pick up on and find out that you're all kind of working on the same thing. Just in separate rooms. So it's good to get together and, and share these best practices. And everyone I've met has been really nice about it because we, we're all trying to have the same goal and that's, you know, help veterans the best we can.
0: You spoke earlier about how sometimes people just assume that you're, you know, you're a college professor, you must be, that must be just like being at Harvard or Yale or Stanford or whatever. I was like, no, right. it's, most of us are doing a whole different kind of work. And in order to do that kind of work, then we don't, most of us aren't able to make the massive investments that would be you know some giant resource or whatever but yet the one of the keys in retention research for our students of course we want to be able to retain these students and see them succeed all the way through graduation is a sense of belonging and many mm-hmm. of the themes i'm hearing you describe as these examples would be instead of an either or approach either we're going to just try to find funding to create this mammoth wow. veteran center, or we're going to not really have any of that at all. And then it's just going to be all the different career center and the different departments within a, a smaller school. We can do a both and approach so we can have that smaller community. And like you said, that's driving some of the decisions around how they want to honor veterans and how they want to have more community and sense of belonging. And, and sometimes that is going to be necessary to have a smaller group of people where I can feel safer to talk about my own experiences and know that many of the people will understand where I'm coming from, but then also having that community that says, look at all these great resources that are here, a tutoring center, a writing center, a career center, and making sure that too much of that sense of belonging doesn't prevent them from utilizing some of these other services in a smaller institution.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And especially in schools, if you don't have your own foundation, or like you said, and I've been at both. I've been at a large research university that had a lot of money, and I've been at community colleges where we had to get really creative. You know, you can partner with local businesses and and, and local philanthropic organizations, you know, and I'm sure you're well aware of this, and so are your listeners. You know, work with the community you're in. That goes back into the college being part of the community, Um, and veterans are certainly, you know, emblematic of, people who have left their community to serve and returned, you know, this, this is where you can make that work for you. So this this is the opposite of what I said about, you know, treat everyone the same and all that. Veterans are a tremendous PR, uh, you know. It's, it's when you go out there and say we wanna help veterans, you know, people are gonna answer the phone. And like you said, it doesn't have to be some multi-million dollar thing, it can be, you know, we need a few thousand dollars for X, you know. so. Everybody, I think this is a whole other conversation, but I think everybody in higher ed needs to be a bit of an entrepreneur right now. Mm. Uh, It's just, you know, whether you want to or not, whether you're at a research university or not, like it's, we're just in that world where learning to do grants, learning how to do partnerships, learning how to do community relations. That's, I mean, even if you're in the classroom, that's a huge part of it. When I was at a private university in Tampa 10 years ago, There was no Student Veterans of America chapter, and nobody knew what it was. And I went directly to SVA, got everything written up, got with the students. They wrote up the Constitution, and we had a charter and the first SVA group, and we had several other campuses. And the next thing I know, they had me on the phone saying, hey, congratulations, you're the subject matter expert. And I'm like, I'm the English professor. And they said, but you're the only one who knows how to do this. And so suddenly, I was going to all these other campuses and other colleges telling them how to do this. And it wasn't complicated. SVA is very good. But nobody had done it. Nobody had known about it. And I said, look, the students didn't know what to do. And I was making phone calls to the Florida VA and saying, can you come down here and talk to these guys about getting a job and about counseling because they want to hear from you? There was nothing. We had folding chairs in a classroom after hours, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's how it started. And so it's nice that it's much more formal than that. But at the same time, it really comes down to, you know, You may be a math professor and think, what am I going to do with this? You may be the person that's talking to these students and sees a need that other people don't because they're not going to the regular channels. And so you're in a position to help them and to get things going.
0: It's so true what you say, too, because it's it can't all land just on your shoulders. And we really do have to think creatively about. And once we start talking about it, it's incredible what people want to do and how they want to help, because these people have done magnificent things for our country and people want to to give back in some way, but they often don't know how. And then we often don't know how to ask. So I just love that idea of us all becoming more entrepreneurial. I like it. This is the point in the show where we each get get to give recommendations. And I am chuckling since mine has absolutely nothing to do with the topic. But that's kind of how these recommendations (laughs) go. Sometimes they relate and other times they do not. I was thinking recently about my... My often reluctance or or inability to really be present with my kids when we're in one place and they're just playing. i, I find myself, you know wanting to catch up on washing the dishes while they're playing. and that's actually good because it's healthy for kids to have independent play. but i was I was cracking up the other day because. I was having more fun and I can sit for longer periods of time playing with this particular toy than any other thing my kids have. It's the dynamo dominoes construction set. There's a number of different sets that are like this, where instead of dominoes that you play with the numbers, it's just colorful tiles that are about the size and shape of regular dominoes. But the pack comes with all these different accessories to turn it more into a Rube Goldberg machine where You know, it hits this bell and the bell rings, and then that hits the next domino, and then it creates this other stair step thing all the way around to this thing that spins around and knocks the next domino over. And it was just so much fun. So I would suggest that people, if you want to even, I mean, I think they're great toys for adults, quite frankly. (laughs) And I put a slow mo of the one that I created with my daughter. Let's be honest, though, it was mostly me. (laughs) She was watching and the Rube Goldberg account on Instagram. It commented on it. And I who knew there was even such a thing. So the second recommendation I have is to check out the Rube Goldberg account on Instagram, because they've got lots of videos. And I didn't realize there are contests all over for Rube Goldberg machines, and they're getting young students involved in these contests. And I just thought it was great fun. So a little a couple things one to play as an adult, or if you're around children with kids, and a second one to follow this really creative account and get inspired by other people's Rube Goldberg creations. And Kevin, what do you have to recommend for us today?
1: So I don't have anything that fun, which is (laughs) I have small kids, so I have a whole house full of fun, goofy things. But I didn't think about that. But in related to what we were talking about, especially since this is a teaching podcast. And like I said, my background is thoroughly academic, not student affairs. But I, I became well aware of student affairs by getting involved in veterans issues. So I recommend that people follow or get involved with NASPA, the National Association of Student Affairs Professionals. They have a subgroup just related to veterans. And by veterans, they include dependents and family members of veterans as well. So the Twitter handle is NASPA Vets, N-A-S-P-A Vets, I think. And if you Google it, it's part of the larger NASPA. Um, That's gotten so big now that they have a separate conference just for the veterans. And it's really big, and it's over a couple of days. And it's not always in D.C. Last time I think it was in Louisville, Kentucky. But even just going there for a couple of days, even if you're an academic, which is my background, you get to really see a lot of best practices and a lot of really interesting work being done related to veterans. The other thing when researching veterans is look outside of just traditional higher ed journals, student affairs or academic. I found a tremendous amount of work in nursing and psychology journals and, and other issues where it wasn't even related to medical issues like PTSD. It was more of counseling and things like that, but it was related to veterans and higher education, but it wasn't being carried in a higher ed journal. It's such a broad-based, broad-based group. Uh, I, I found out accidentally when I was at a university that the paper I was working on Somebody in the nursing department was working on almost the exact same thing, but from a nursing standpoint, you know, it was a huge university. We never would have found each other except they had a Veterans Day thing at, at the school and the Student Veterans of America people were there and they were talking about research and suddenly I ran into a bunch of people and we ended up, you know, working on some stuff together. You really have to get out of your office and and, and get with some other people um, to find out what's going on. But NASPA is a good place because it's people from all over the country working on stuff, And Twitter, you know, there's so much terrible things on Twitter, but there's a lot of really great things, um, which is how I met Bonnie and how I've met some other uh, really interesting people doing a lot of really interesting work. So, yeah, keep doing what you're doing because it's important.
0: Kevin Jones, thank you so much for joining me today on Teaching in Higher Ed. And thanks for all these tangible ways that we can be learning even more ways to serve our veteran students.
1: Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thanks once again to Kevin Jones for this inspiring conversation about how to better serve our veteran students. I also want to thank Screencast-O-Matic for your financial support for the show. Those of you who want to check out their software and how you could use it to do screencasting in your own teaching can go to screencast-o-matic.com slash highered50 and get 50% off, which is an exclusive offer for the Teaching in Higher Ed listeners. Thanks so much for listening today. We've got some great episodes coming up. And for some of us, we are moving into our summer season, which I know for many of you means continuing to teach, but for some of you, a little bit of something different in terms of a season of your life. I hope you keep on listening, and we all keep together finding ways to improve our teaching. I'll see you next time.